Hello, this is Jim Wallace, and you're listening to The Soul of the Nation, a podcast about how our faith should shape our politics and not the other way around. Today, I'm speaking with Mark Magana about some of the challenges our Latino brothers and sisters face in this country, specifically regarding environmental impacts and voting rights. Mark Magana is president and CEO of Green Latinos a national network of Latino environmental advocates. Mark served as a special assistant to President Clinton for White House Legislative Affairs and as a senior policy advisor in Congress. Mark Magana, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks, Jim. I'm, I'm glad that you had me on today. Well, I'm looking forward to this conversation, all the things you can help us understand better and deeper. So let me, Mark, start with a question that I'm always curious to hear the answer to from my guests, which is just, how is your spirit? <laughs> How's your spirit today? Like in most days, it's dynamic. I'm mixed. I am very happy that my children are in school and they're healthy and that we're getting through this pandemic and that we're working towards finding a solution to the climate crisis. Uh, I'm, I'm feeling good today. Well, I'm glad you start with your kids like I always do as well. They're they're good, so I'm good too. <laughs> now, this podcast looks at things often from a faith perspective. Our listeners are people of faith and not, but we try to provide that sort of framing for things. So fighting the climate crisis is a moral, ethical, and religious duty, I think. There are biblical calls for all humanity to act as stewards of the earth, to care for God's creation. When you examine the consequences of climate change, it is clear that Jesus' call in Matthew 25, my favorite text and really my conversion text, to care for the hungry, the thirsty, and the stranger is a command to protect the earth and the people in it. So talk about all of our responsibilities individually and collectively to address this climate crisis. It is interesting because the framing by which most Latinos, Latinas, Latinx, uh, individuals approach the environment is one of stewardship. It's one of being a cultural conservationist, uh, being taught by your parents, your grandparents, your uncles, your aunts, the basics of how to conserve. I like to say that we learn environmentalism from the back of a chancla. And a chancla is like a slipper that your grandparents use or your uncles or your mom parents use to, to give you a tap on the rear end to remind you to do something. Close the door, turn off the air conditioning, use, use a sweater, conserve, reuse, repurpose. We value the land, the air, the water. We have a one-to-one -one relationship. And we hope to maintain that culture of conservationism because... It's a way we honor our ancestors. We, we want to prevent our community as we become more consumer-oriented and probably more distant from the agrarian lifestyle from forgetting that one-to-one -one relationship and omitting that. Uh, the final thing I'll mention is that uh, it was interesting. We did polling, and Latinos indicated in two questions next to each other. One was... Do you consider yourself to be a steward of the environment? And it was in the high 70s. And the very next question was, do you consider yourself to be an environmentalist? And it was in the, in the high teens. 
And so the difference between being someone who considers themselves to be a steward in the environment because that's what you were taught, it's, pardon the pun, second nature, is very different than the formal aspect of joining an organization or considering yourself an environmentalist. But yet, we still have it, and it's part of our respect for God's creation. Mark, that's a very powerful thing I hope our listeners are paying attention to, that it must become a cultural thing. Or you're saying it's the way we live. It's not a set of policies or joining an organization or being labeled as an environmentalist. It's how we're supposed to live and how we're taught to live to be good stewards of the culture of the creation. That's so foundational to making progress here, not just a list of issues that we check off on a balance sheet. Yeah, to the point where it's ingrained, where it feels very uncomfortable and disturbing to do otherwise. Kind of like it would feel right now for us to just litter, throw a can or a wrapper on the ground. It's very uncomfortable. And so that's the feeling that when you take it on as part of your culture, hurting God's creation should be very uncomfortable to you. (laughs) So doing the things that hurt God's creation should be made uncomfortable to us. I like that a lot. Speaking of polling, let's go to a study from Pew. Pew Research Center revealed that over 80% of U.S. Latino voters indicated the global climate crisis is their greatest or one of their greatest concerns. That really surprised me in a wonderful way, because that's often not the case for most communities. So why do you think the Hispanic population outpaces the nation as a whole in its concern over the environment? I think there are are several reasons for that, and our polling has shown that also. One is Latinos tend to live on states where there are higher levels of natural climate-related natural disasters, and that includes Florida, California, Texas, with the massive hurricanes and flooding, and it goes on and on, and how our community is also on the front lines when it comes to being frontline workers, workers in the agriculture that is very susceptible to climate change issues of drought and flooding and and heat and and them suffering, farm workers suffering from heat exhaustion. And then laborers out doing building and, and you have industries that are really susceptible to the effects of climate change in uh, the service industry where it'll really affect tourism or hotels and restaurants. And so we really have seen, especially during the pandemic, that Latinos are are frontline workers. They're workers that had to show up day in and day out to feed us, to care for our children, to care for uh, our food. And it was a situation where this one-to-one relationship with the effects of climate change is felt where you live, where you work. And then finally, it's really felt in Latinos countries of origin in Central America, where you have countries that have extreme drought or extreme flooding, where they can no longer grow their subsistence crops. And so you have a massive amounts of climate migration, where they're not looking for a better life, they're looking to survive. So when voters say, when Latino voters say, we are feeling the effects of climate change now, 
and we want our government and our leaders to do something about it at higher numbers, it's because they're, they are feeling the effects now. So we would both probably call COVID-19 revelatory. Um, it revealed uh, things that were already there, uh, that were already true, that we just had not noticed or paid attention to before. And so what COVID-19 revealed for some people, for others it was already known, the vast health disparities between Latinos and non-Hispanic whites. Can you connect the dots for us, starting with the environmental hazards, uh, instances of cancer and respiratory disease, ending with uh, greater deaths and more severe outcomes from COVID-19 for the Hispanic population in the United States? Absolutely. Domestically with Latinos, the primary message that is effective when it comes to pushing back on the climate crisis is a message of health, and in particularly the health of their children. Latinos and people of color and low-income people, they live in the shadow of industry. They live in the shadow of power plants. They live in the shadow of freeways. And these carbon dioxide emissions and associated emissions, they are horribly toxic and horribly toxic to adults, but multiple times more toxic to young children and their young lungs. And so when you're talking about a pandemic that attacks the lungs and you're talking about attacking the lungs of a community that's already suffering from cardiovascular and pulmonary issues from their communities and their location, then the the threat of the pandemic, in addition to a communities who had no choice but to go to work, that really caused for a huge, huge loss of life in our communities. I first learned this from Ben Chavis decades ago. He was a remarkable activist in the movement, and he worked with the United Church of Christ. He drew these maps. One was a map of all the toxic places, toxic dumps, all the places where toxicity was the highest. And then he had a map of where all people who were poor and minority lived, and the maps were virtually identical. They were racist by design, not by happenstance. And the overlay of what is on one community side of the freeway versus the others, the other side of the railroad tracks was on purpose. And so now there is a rising up and has been a rising up of communities to defend themselves and not let this happen. And we've seen many successful stories in New York and Los Angeles and across the country of people rising up and saying, not not in my community. And so that leaves these victories that these lower income communities of color are fighting with almost no support or resources to be victories for everyone. So carrying the day for everyone by stopping these things from happening. I wanna shift to something deeply related that I know you and I want to talk about as well, which is all of these issues that we're talking about, these policy choices and decisions are connected to to voting. (laughs) In addition to your environmental work, I want to tap into your expertise as a mobilizer of Latino voters. Now we're seeing unprecedented barriers being erected to deny voting rights across the country with a strategic emphasis on the swing states that determine the outcome of the election in 2020. What are you seeing and hearing 
regarding free and fair access to voting and to elections. Voting should be one of the easiest things that we do. Voting should be accessible. There's no way it should be restricted. And and the fact that they can openly attempt to restrict it and be still supported by their constituency is unbelievable to me. These efforts are taking down, destroying what we have known as a fairly well-functioning democracy where all where we we at least have the optimism that all voices and all votes count. But now we see that in many places in our country, mostly like you mentioned communities of color, they're really restricting this access to the ballot box and and clearly voting is being suppressed with these hundreds and hundreds of bills that are being introduced and re- and provisions in almost every state in the country. And many of them have already passed and they're undoing our democracy. And that used to be a point of shame and it no longer is. Uh, three states with the fastest growing Latino populations, Florida, Texas, and Arizona have passed laws that will make it more difficult for Latinos to cast their votes. Now, this is nothing new. For 60 years, Arizona required voters to pass an English literacy test. The framers of that legislation are on the record saying their clear intention was to block, and I quote their exact and foul language here, block the ignorant Mexican vote. And according to the the Brennan Center, Latino voters are on the front lines of voter suppression. Half of me says it's shocking. Half of me says it isn't shocking. It isn't shocking in in light of the Trump and Trumpism and people who are following him or QAnon or other blatant racist viewpoints and beliefs and actions that they would take this on. And the reason they're taking on the Latino community is because they know that we don't have the political power yet to fight back as well. And they also know that when it comes to the states that will determine the next president of the United States, that Latinos are overrepresented in states that you mentioned that are the battleground states and states where we are the fastest growing, as you also mentioned. In 2020, we saw a massive growth in the Latino vote, especially in early voting even. You know, that made 2016 look like a a small election. The turnout in 2020 of Latinos, especially young Latinos, was huge. For the first time ever, over half of eligible Latinos voted in 2020. And so they are responding to that. And about one in every 10 voters in the election in 2020 were Latino. That's an incredible registration and turnout effort that was made. And it was especially new and younger voters that really lit up the election. And because of the turnout in 2020 of black and brown voters was so high, all these laws have not come down in 2021. (laughs) So the Voting Rights Lab uh, reports in Texas, for example, they've made it more difficult for Spanish speakers to receive help understanding the ballot. And the law also established monthly citizen checks Tell us what those citizen checks are and what do you expect these new measures, the impact expect them to have across the country on Latino voting? They're a matter of raw intimidation and voter suppression. They're like putting police or immigration officials 
at the voting booths or at the collection boxes. They're like being able to carry open carry guns to the voting booths and be able to show them blatantly and intimidate. They are the raw suppression of, of make, taking actions like this takes our most vulnerable voters, those who have the most to lose in an election and saying, we're going to do everything we can to take away your uh, right to vote and no one's going to stop us. And that threat to what the world considered to be an ideal democracy, even if it wasn't and hasn't been for a while, really has blown a giant crater-like hole into how we're perceived in the world and how our own community perceives the United States as a golden land. They're seeing the ugliness of politics from many of their own homelands being shown here, and it, it, and it is frightening, and they know that. I think that's a really important point, Mark, that you're making here, how uh, many Latinos are from countries that do not have a strong history of democracy. So they didn't expect that. Things may even seem better here than what it was back home. Uh, and so there's an expectation. I was with a, an Uber driver yesterday. We got talking about racism, and she's all racism. Racism it always is, always will, will be, always going on. We just expect that, and we just kind of work around it. It's, uh, it's like an ongoing. And there's an issue, I would think, of trust here, particularly among Latino families of not trusting the U.S. government. I know a lot of census workers have had a very hard time in their work because uh, you've got a lot of families, a lot of Latino families are blended families where documented, undocumented are in the same house. And there's nervousness and worry about, you know, anything that wants to check on who's in the house and who's there and all of that because of all the fear of deportation. So probably trust issues are at stake here, I would think, too. There are huge trust issues. Uh, and again, countries of origin, the safety, the lack of safety, the violence. And, and you mentioned the, the census. I mean, you saw recently the articles about the massive undercount of Latinos and people of color uh, and low-income people in, in the census. And yeah, Latinos, they will not answer the door if they don't know the person. They will not open the door. They will not respond to the census lest that let, you know, they, they don't trust the government to use that against them. This is what decides how money is distributed, how political power is distributed, where a school should be placed, access to resources, trillions of dollars for schools, roads, relief for natural disasters. And so it really is a shame about the massive level of undercount. You know, there's a lot of work being done in the community to make sure that things like the census are protected uh, by having community members, known entities, known leaders, known community members be the ones to come to the door or else we're going to continue to see these types of undercounts. An old friend of mine, he was a Presbyterian pastor uh, in Tucson, and uh, a lawyer came to the door and said, there are these uh, people in the desert, they're from El Salvador, and they're on their own and they're dying, they have no one to support them. Could you come out? And he remembered this Matthew 25 text, as you've done to the least of these, you've done to me. If you welcome the stranger, welcoming me. He said he didn't even know where El Salvador was. His name was John Fife. <laughs> he went out and was one of the leaders in the early sanctuary movement and was 
charged with felonies for taking in the stranger in the desert in Arizona. And it's exactly right. What he found was the teaching of Jesus, which he he thought he believed in, but then he found people who were strangers in his desert, and he took them in, and it changed the life of that church, and they're still involved in all, all of that. Given that history, the big question for us at the Center on Faith and Justice at Georgetown, it's voting rights, but underneath, that's what it means to build a multiracial democracy in this nation, which we've never been, and not really ever committed ourselves to. And the main obstruction to that multiracial democracy is white Christian nationalism. How do you wrestle, and I wrestle with this too, how do you wrestle with the fact that even though Donald Trump spent four years attacking immigrants, particularly Mexicans, with both the racist caravan language and the border wall, and yet he got an increasing number of Hispanic votes and even some votes, more votes among African-American men after he'd done this for four years in 2020. How do you wrestle with that? in the Hispanic community. (laughs) I wrestle with that by our own self-critique of the fact that our political parties and and the Democrats in this case took Latino votes for granted. We didn't take hard stances on being pro-immigrant. We didn't take hard stances on protecting immigrants or protecting Spanish-speaking or protecting low-income or protecting we were wishy-washy. We were scared of our own shadow. We didn't want to lose centrists. We even thought we could get some uh, pullback, some uh, traditional Republicans. And so we came at uh, Latinos and other people of color. We came at them with a with an agenda that was essentially not giving anything to anyone, just trying to keep everyone happy and not taking a hard stance on behalf of anyone. And Trump as much as many communities didn't like him, he took hard, ugly stances and he stood behind them and got them done with law breaking. And for some reason, it appealed to them. Fortunately, we saw in the most recent uh, Texas primary that that is quickly diluting that feel and that some of the numbers that we lost to Republicans, Latinos in Texas have gone back, but it's still a significant concern, the attraction, especially among Latino males, to a strong man or a strong woman, even with that kind of agenda, uh, that attraction uh, was was real. And that that's something that the Democrats, A, can't take the community for granted, need to stand behind a strong progressive agenda and not be afraid of their own shadow and not try to appeal to everyone, and in the end, appeal to no one. So, Mark, give me your advice on this. In terms of the face united to save democracy, Barbara Skinner, you know, we've got Gabriel Salguero working with us and Carlos Malave, key Latino leaders. How can we draw in more of those leaders to really uh, speak up and stand up and mobilize and create hubs of uh, voter protection all over the country? How can we, how can we do that? I think... The way that the church does it is by bringing back their servant attitude. When my grandparents immigrated from Mexico, they were Catholic in in upbringing. And the church that was the servant to the community, that provided the benefits, that looked out for the immigrants, that provided services was the Baptist church. And they 
quickly became Baptist and participated in the church because the church participated in the community and became strong voices because of that service. And when my parents became better off and were able to, they became attracted not to the church that provided them services, but to the church where they could provide the most services within that church. And that is how we saw the community within the church was built, because we brought in the needy, the poor, and they came for the food, they came for the services, but they stayed for the love. And they stayed and became service providers themselves. And that is powerful for building community, a strong community and a strong leaders from people who never suspected they could be leaders. And so that kind of servant attitude in the church is what we need more of. And to be able to bring back that powerful, unbreakable sense of community. Well, I think we can take that as a benediction for this conversation. Uh, And what you said before, what it means to come back to the teachings of Jesus. Uh, John Fife uh, found Jesus' teachings and got in trouble for it in the desert in Arizona, but he found his faith in a way he never had before. So uh, that your, your benediction there, I think, is, as you said before, always coming back to those teachings of Jesus is what brings us back to our faith. And that's what draws young people especially. They're looking for courage. They're looking for who's doing the work. Not just what this church believes in as they walk by, but they want to say that's the place where we meet and have town meetings. And that's the place that people get served. That's what we talk about stuff. And they don't know what they believe about all the doctrine there, but they want to be in a place where people are putting their faith into action. So that's what I'm hoping and praying for. We'll never get to a multiracial democracy until at least the faith community comes back to those teachings. So I want to thank you for your good work. Very impressed and grateful for all that you do and for this time you took today to have a conversation with us. So thank you very much, my friend. I appreciate it, Jim. I appreciate your time. And I am optimistic about the church. I have seen liberation theology at work, and I have seen the courage of frontline clergy. And I believe that if we can come back to the point where we are uh, the servant uh, leaders, and we'll create more uh, servant leaders as we grow and be able to be a core of what of what we need to both save our democracy, but also save our planet in the years we have remaining to do so from the climate crisis. Well, making that connection is so critical, saving our democracy and saving our planet. That's what you do in your work every day. So, Mark Begania, founding president and CEO of Green Latinos, thank you for being on the Soul of the Nation. For more Soul of the Nation updates, don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review, and follow me on Twitter at Jim Wallace if you like. Blessings for the Soul of the Nation. Thank you all.